everyone, and welcome to the Vori's IP, the IP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're speaking with Bill Klima, who is of counsel in the Washington, D.C. office of Vori's, Sater, Seymour, and Pease, and a member of the Intellectual Property and Technology Group. Bill and I will be discussing patent examiners for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. In a prior life, Bill worked as a patent examiner, so he's got some great inside perspective to share with us. And now here's my conversation with Bill. All right, Bill Klima, he is of counsel in the Voris Washington, D.C. office. He's a member of the Technology and Intellectual Property Group. He's been with Voris for about nine years now and focuses his practice primarily on patent procurement and prosecution in a variety of fields. Bill received a degree in chemistry from Syracuse University, following which he attended the State University of New York at Buffalo, where he received a bachelor's in aerospace engineering. Bill subsequently attended George Mason, where he received his law degree. And particularly relevant to our conversation today, Bill served as a patent examiner at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for some time before switching sides and entering private practice. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, as you know, we're going to talk a little bit about examiners, U.S. patent examiners in particular. And for those that are listening to this podcast that are generally unfamiliar or maybe want a refresher of what they are, can you just start off giving us a general overview of what are patent examiners and uh, what's their purpose? Yeah, most of the uh, patent examiners over the years I've met are right out of school. They typically have bachelor's degrees, maybe master's. In the biotech area, they typically have PhD degrees. So you have to have either science or technical engineering background experience to get accepted and be a patent examiner at the USPTO. But basically, your job is you receive new applications in your particular art unit. I happen to be in the surgery and printing art units when I attended. So you get new cases and you basically examine them. And what I mean by that, you review the spec. You review the drawings, you review the claims, and then you go out and do a search. Most searches today are basically, uh, you know, word searches, but they're very effective. After they've done their search, they actually do a uh, office action where they set forth that there's problems with formalities. There's 35 USC rejections, for example, indefiniteness, 101 rejections for subject matter, and and then you have the art rejections, 35 USC 102 anticipation and 35 USC 103 obviousness. Mm-hmm. But basically, they send out that first office action to get the prosecution started, and then they get a response back from attorneys. Right. So would you say, I mean, generally, for people that are unfamiliar with the process, is a patent examiner, is their purpose to reject a patent application, or do you tend to see them as a, kind of an ally? Most of the examiners are very professional and very competent as far as technical abilities. They do a good job examining. However, most cases, some or all the claims get rejected typically in a first office action. And that creates you know, some file history as far as responding back by the attorney or agent. And this creates you know, some estoppel issues if it ever goes to litigation. Yeah, so we might see some some adversarial back and forth, but for the most part, you think that um, I mean, they're, they're just doing their job. They want to make sure they get quality patents is what it sounds like. Uh, yeah, yes, I would say most examiners are looking to get a quality patent out the door. They're looking for claims. They typically like to have more restrictions or limitations in the claims that create a little bit of a safety net for themselves as far as quality review. But Otherwise, most are willing to eventually issue patents. Uh Yeah. 
Well, you've given us a really good background of who they are with a technical background, but uh, these aren't considered legal experts, right? I don't think, in fact, I don't know if any patent examiners off the top of my head are actually attorneys, but what's your view on that being legal experts? Most of the examiners typically only technical have technical backgrounds. There are a number of patent examiners that are attending law school when they're in the patent office. I, don't, I believe they still have a program at the patent office to help uh, financially afford law school. And there's some commitment at the tail end as far as years of commitment for how much money or how many uh, semesters are paid for by the patent office. But most examiners in general are not lawyers, so they are not legal experts, in my opinion. Yeah, which leads me into my next question. You mentioned office actions. The examiners prepare these rejections and we're required to respond to them as patent practitioners. So when we're responding, when we're drafting a response, how effective would it be to cite case law, for example, a new case that comes down that supports your position of patentability? Will an examiner take case law? Or is it more, I guess, beneficial to cite passages from the manual of patent examining and procedure, the MPEP? Yeah, it's really a case-by-case basis in in certain areas, like especially like the chemical uh, biotech areas. uh, A lot of case law is cited by attorneys many times in responding. It's less so like in the mechanical, electrical areas. Case law is fairly well established. There's some recent case law in 35 U.S.C. 101 that's still being uh, considered for further amendment or revision. But otherwise... The MPEP really is the Bible for the patent examiners, so we like to uh, cite passages of the uh, Manual of Patent Examining and Procedure. And, of course, some of the the sections that actually do cite case law, too. But examiners, again, they don't have the legal background, but a lot of them do attempt to have lists of case law and what these different cases mean, and they do try to attempt at times to apply them. So you'll see it if you practice. Right. It's been my experience that I, I see the examiners will more focus, you know, on the arguments based around the MPEP. And my background is mechanical. So most of my arguments are my device or my apparatus includes these elements. The prior art that you're citing doesn't therefore give me a patent. So showing some legal argument why I'm right wouldn't necessarily make a lot of sense with the, the kind of responses that I'm familiar with. So a little bit more about some of the the patent examiners and their, the expectations that they have as an examiner in the Patent and Trademark Office, what is expected? Is, is this so-called quota system that people have heard of? The examiners are subject to basically a production type of system. And it's you could maybe possibly call that a quota system. But they, uh, they get what they call a count when they uh, do the first office action and they get a second count when they actually dispose of the case, which is the case is allowed, the case is appealed, the case is abandoned. So they do depend on production. These counts are really real. The numbers count, and they have to produce. The amount of production goes up significantly with GS level. So it's a real system, and it's been in place for many, many years. Have you seen that to be a help or more of a burden? For example, if you get a final office action and uh, you're coming up to the end of your review period as an examiner, you really would like to have an RCE, a request for continued examination. Have you seen that play out where the examiner will reject things in the hopes that he'll get another you know, check mark in his box there uh, based on this quota system? 
I think that uh, they really are focused on production examiners. They, they have to meet these numbers and they respond accordingly. So if they could get an RCE in, it, it's a little bit of incentive as far as added time that they could consider that particular case. And it does seem to be effective as far as giving them extra time to do those type of activities. Yeah. Well, Bill, you've got a couple of decades of experience working with patent examiners. So I'm wondering, what were some of, some of the ways that you found to work with patent examiners that helped move an application towards allowance? To me, the most effective procedure really is to uh, do interviews. In-person interviews are very effective when you could get in front of an examiner and possibly the uh, primary SPE. Unfortunately, with COVID, it's really hard to do that now. So we've been somewhat using telephonic interviews that are still very effective. So usually we do U.S. prosecution and we do a lot of foreign originated prosecution. A lot of the foreign attorneys in other countries like to participate in these interviews. It gives them the ability to ask questions, give their positions on different subject matter, and Really, it's very interactive, and and in the end, we ask for recommendations at these interviews. So the examiner really has a chance to open up and tell us what he's looking, he or she's looking for. And I found extremely effective and probably should be done in many cases, especially cases where the prosecution is not advancing quickly. Yeah. I remember I was uh, about third year attorney and I was working for a partner jumped on a, an examiner call. He invited the client to jump on the call too. And so I think that that affected a little bit how this partner was was handling the interview. And the partner became pretty combative, very aggressive, confronted the examiner on almost everything. And in, in the end, if you have an atmosphere like that, there was no agreement reached. And it was a pretty difficult end to that call actually ended up calling the examiner back afterwards and apologizing, saying, listen, we're trying to help the client here, and this is where we'd like to get. Is there any way we can do it? And he admitted, he's like, that was a rough call, but we got to work it out. But along those lines, this war story of mine, what are some tips that, or suggestions that you have that have been helpful to you to work with examiners? I think it's really important to be very honest about your responses and factual and straight up as also, too, if you make the office action response too long, the examiners can't find the important material. So it's really, really important to be concise as much as possible so you get your point across as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, conciseness is key. I think we don't want to bury the lead deep into the text because <laughs> I got a feeling a lot of examiners just take the, the basics right at the very beginning of each paragraph and read through that. They don't like what they see. It's going to be difficult to convince. So yeah, less is more in a lot of cases when you were drafting response in my experience. Right. And of course, the claims speak for themselves. So really very good response on the claims, the amended claims, what you're proposing, and just double, triple check the language to make sure you have it correct. When you're filing, it's real important. Prevent difficult work later to correct things if you didn't do it right. Yeah, so in my experience, it's been good to build trust with an examiner. I think it's important because it lets the examiner know you're not trying to pull one over. We both have a common goal. We, we want to try to get something that's on file and, and allowed that's good and pleases both sides. So how do you suggest building trust with an examiner? 
Well, I believe just maintaining a professional relationship, communicating professionally is extremely important. I think respect is very important in any type of communication, both written and verbal. So these type of things build trust. I think if you uh, if you argue well factually and your arguments are effective, that builds trust too, that the examiner can count on the attorney as far as the potential allowability of a case. So these things all are relatively important for an outcome. Yeah, building that trust has been key to a couple of examiners that I've worked with on a consistent basis. It's good to you know, make sure that they understand that I'm, I'm just out there trying to do my job and he's out there trying to do his job. But you mentioned at least once about you've got an examiner, there are primary examiners, but there's also supervisory primary examiners, uh, we call them SPEES. So you're working with an examiner. Is it ever good to reach out to the examiner supervisor or a primary examiner above that examiner? When would you recommend doing something like that? I try to avoid it because it creates such havoc with the examiner when the supervisor comes and confronts the examiner with an issue or problem. So it's really best to try and work with the examiner as much as possible. There will be situations where you have to go to the supervisor because uh, something is not being done procedurally correctly or there's some real issues that need to go up. But I usually involve the examiner and the SPE if I have that situation during a telephonic or in-person interview. That's really how to do it in a way that's not disrespectful at all to the examiner. Yep, agreed. So we're coming about the time we're going to end the podcast here. I just wanted to follow up with one last question here. Now, you worked in the Patent and Trademark Office for a while. I know you have some colleagues there. Do you consider any examiners that you work with on a consistent basis during your prosecution efforts? Do you consider any of them your friends? And if so, why? Yeah, yeah, a lot of them are very friendly. I consider the relationship really uh, professional, mainly. So they have their job to do. I have my job to do. I think it's real important. Negotiation is very important as far as out. You have to give and take. If you have a difficult situation where a claim's close to being allowable, you really want to try and work it out with the examiner to see what language or limitation could possibly place the claim, and independent claims in particular, in condition for allowance. So, like I said, trying to understand the examiner and how they're thinking about a particular claim, the feedback is just critical in trying to place the claim in condition for allowance. So taking their advice and trying to understand where they're going, I think are key in that. Yes. All right. Well, Bill, very enlightening. Your experience has been something that's helped me out, I know, and through this conversation and give me a couple of things to think about. And hopefully those that are listening will glean some of the information and, and some of the knowledge that you provided for us. Bill, I appreciate your time on the podcast. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Talk soon. This has been an episode of the Boris IP VIP podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to speak to either myself or any of the guests, please feel free to reach out to us. You can contact us through Boris' website or via the Boris Intellectual Property Updates webpage on LinkedIn. If you have a suggestion for a podcast topic or would like to recommend a particular guest, we'd love to hear from you. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I hope you can join us next time. <music>